from the Midwest City Free Methodist Church. It's not because the churches are looking for a fight, or they want to make people mad, or they want to make headlines, or any of that. I've said before, the church is not uh, a mere charity, it's not a social betterment organization, it's not a political activist group, per se. I mean, the church is none of those things in particular. Church, a biblical church is a gospel church. It keeps the main things the main things. So we're none of those things in particular. However, every church, if it's a biblical church and a gospel church, it also is not shy or weak or too afraid to talk about whatever the things are, whatever the things that need to be talked about. But in the time and place in which you live, there are things, no matter what generation that you live in. So the church, you know, the gospel informs everything. Our message is a lot bigger than any of those topics if we were sort of a one-issue group. Our message is vast. It's more expansive than that. So it addresses everything. So the gospel yields a perspective. It gives you a way to see things in the true sense, to see things like they really are, to know and understand the truth about everything. And that includes everything that's going on in your own culture and in your own time, everything that all the people around you talk about. So we're not spoiling for fights, but we also will not cease to say what's true and speak in a prophetic voice like we're supposed to, like we're called to do. It's like Henry V told the French constable, we would not seek a battle as we are, but as we are, we say, we will not shun it. We're not going to run away or just be quiet about certain topics because, um, you know, they're sort of sensitive to some people. We've got to say what's right for the good of all people and for the rescuing of people and for the care of people. The reason all these churches are doing this today is because this thing, this thing we're talking about, it's so plain. It's just so plain. It's just so obvious. There was this article a few years ago. It was entitled, Why I Hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. Why I Hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. The article was written by... The Baptist theologian, Russell Moore, who writes a lot about you know, culture and politics, but what he was saying in the article was, he was saying, I hate that we, all the churches, have to dedicate a day to something that should seem so morally obvious. I hate that it's come to this, that we have to emphasize things as simple as that parents should not kill or allow or have their babies killed. Or that we have to actually dedicate an entire day to say that every living being has value, that life is sacred. And the most simple things, it just seems so obvious to us. And yet here we are. Well, nothing has ever changed about the hard facts of this, this issue. There, there, are, there are no new revelations that really change the basic facts about this thing. The moral truth of this has never changed. It's never been altered. Abortion as an issue, I mean, it, it really, at its core, it just remains what it always was, which is 
the killing of a human being, and we could even add the gruesome killing of a human being in utero for reasons that do not justify that act. That's, that's, that's the simplest definition of what we could, we could paint over it in, in many coats of lingo that might take the edge off. But that's really what this is. This is the killing of a human being in utero for overwhelmingly for illegitimate reasons. Now, when it comes to the reasons, for example, things like sex selection in parts of the world, or eugenics, or frankly, just mere convenience, or for sexual freedom, we're going to talk about those next week. I'm going to make this over to another week. It's just too much to say. So I want to talk about the reasons next week. Of course, spoiler alert on the reasons, the main reasons why why this is so common, why there are so many abortions. The spoiler of it is, not surprisingly, that the main reasons don't include because um, the life and health of women just really demands it. No, the overwhelming reasons are those other reasons, and we'll explore that more. That means you have to come back. So you've got to really come back and, and hear that. Unless, of course, it happens that you will be in India giving scholarships and dedicating buildings. If that's you, then you have an excuse. You don't have to be here. But that's only a few of you, and we know who you are. And we'll get to you a little bit later. Well, nothing then has changed here. So why? Uh, what, what does change? If the, if the main hard facts of this thing don't change, what does change? And what does change is the culture, is cultural attitudes and the use of our language. That changes. That changes over time in different decades. And that, of course, is something that we are required, we are called to pay attention, to notice it, and to, to speak truthfully about it. That we're called to do as we see it happening. And, of course, it does happen. And, you know, the truth is, if people let themselves, if people just let themselves, they can't help but seeing the, the obvious here. And there are times, from time to time, we see even the supporters of abortion, people who really tow the party line on it, we see them occasionally get a pretty good glimpse and, and there will be a streak of honesty where part of the truth of this they see. So, last month, there was this article in The Atlantic by a writer named Caitlin Flanagan, who is described as a long-time writer on women's issues. She is not a conservative-minded person. She's a lifelong Californian raised in Berkeley with a master's in art history. Does that sound like somebody who would share your views for the most part? No, she's not pro-life. However, however, She's a little more thoughtful and honest about these things. And I was quite surprised when I saw this article called The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. That was the title. Now here's an image of the cover of it as it appeared online. The Dishonesty of the Abortion Debate. And what she did was, in the first half of this thing, she described, this is a long article, in the first half of it she described 
um, all sorts of trials and tribulations in the past years, uh, the plight of women who used all sorts of dangerous means to obtain illegal abortions uh, before it was made legal. This was the half of the article where she was trying to say, well, there's a certain kind of dishonesty on the part of this one side where the implication was you're not being honest about you know how bad things were and you know women used Lysol and all these terrible things. But it was the second half of the article that was the shocker where she then turned around and, and wanted to say and yet on the other side which is really I think her side on the other side, we haven't really been honest about something either. And what she said that her side hasn't been honest about is the very simple fact, the plain thing that I already said, which is that abortion ends the life of a human being. And the language that she uses is quite surprising. Let me read to you an extended portion here. What she says about on that second half about the dishonesty here. So she says, The first time that I saw one of the new 3D ultrasounds of a fetus in utero, I was not entirely sure what I was looking at. It was not anything like the old black and white images that I was used to seeing. This image looked otherworldly, like we had finally made contact with a planet that we've always wanted to reach because they were so clearly like us, so obviously human, and so individual. These sonograms are so richly detailed that many expected mothers pay to have one made, much in the spirit that they might bring the baby to a portrait studio. They are one thing, and one thing only. Baby pictures. Had they been available when I was pregnant, I definitely would have wanted one. You see... When you're pregnant, you're desperate to make contact. You know he's real because of the changes in your own body, and then eventually you start to feel his. The first kicks are startling, then a little exciting. Even once they progress so far that you can see an actual foot move across your belly and then disappear. But he's still a mystery. He's still engaged in his private work. He's still floating in the aquatic chamber within, more in touch with the forces that brought him here than with the life as it is lived on the other side. For a long time, she says, these images made me very anxious because they are proof that what grows within a pregnant woman's body is a human being, living and unfolding according to a timetable that has existed as long as we have. And obviously, it would take a profound act of violence to remove him from this quiet world and to destroy him. Well, most abortions happen in the first trimester, a very smart and kind friend reassured me. I didn't need to worry about those detailed images of babies. By the time they had grown to such recognizably human proportions, as in those sonograms, when most of them were well past the stage of development in which the majority of abortions take place. And I held on to that comforting piece of information until it occurred to me to look at one of those images taken at the end of the first trimester. And I often wish that I hadn't. A picture of a 12-week fetus is a Rorschach test. Some people say that such an image does not trouble them. That the fetus suggests just the possibility of a developed baby. 
I envy them. Because when I see that image, I have the opposite reaction. I think, here is one of us. Here is a baby. She has fingers and toes by now. She has eyelids and ears. She's starting to gain a distinct profile. Her one and only face emerging. Each 12-week fetus bears its own particular code. This one, bound to be good at music. That one, destined for a life of impatience, tapping his pencil on the desk, waiting for recess. And she says this, What I can't face about abortion is the reality of it, that these are human beings, the most vulnerable among us, and we have no care for them. How terrible to know that in the space of an hour, the baby could be alive, heart beating, kidneys functioning, all of it, and then be dead. Heart stopped, body soon discarded. The argument for abortion, she says, if made honestly, requires many words. The argument against it doesn't take even a single word. The argument against it is a picture. Well, a picture maybe like this one. The truth here is not hard to find when we think about the issue. Our, our problem, if you want to say the problem we face, our challenge it's not the issue itself. It's not, it's not a good case to be made. That case makes itself, even as this writer said, that case can almost just be made by exhibit A. Open and shut. No, our challenge is to deal with the fallen race that we belong to in a fallen world that we live in and to find the way to speak and to then be ready and then to have the, the prepared compassion to actually do the stuff that's got to be done to help the people who are, who are sort of caught in the whole web of falsehoods that leads to millions of tragic events taking place. And so that's the church. Yeah, nobody told you this is going to be just really easy. I don't remember Jesus saying, come follow me, this whole thing will just be real easy. Prepare yourself for the smoothest road you've ever walked. No, no. So, so we're not surprised. Are we surprised that this, is, that this is a hard thing we're up against. Again, not hard because of the arguments themselves. That part's easy. But hard because we now have to communicate. We now, this has to be relational. And now we've got to put money and time and resources and actual care toward people uh, in, a, in, a, in a world that's gone somewhat mad. And that is our calling.